Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl. It is the last day of May, May 31st, 2018, and we have a bit of a humid day here in New York. But there's nothing soggy and humid about my guest today. Emily Nagoski, PhD, is a terrific. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's early. <laughs> it's kind of how do you know? <laughs> because I'm chatting with you, and I think you're terrific <laughs> and spunky and sparky and filled with all kinds of uh, wisdom for us. She is the author of Come As You Are, which is um, an incredible book about the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. I read it, it's transformative. And she's also the author of the forthcoming Burnout, which uh, takes off on uh, a part of the end of that book. Emily, thanks so much for joining me today on Wise Girl. It's my pleasure, thank you so much. Yeah, sorry, for, <laughs> that was a little strange intro for you. I apologize, but no, I mean, I'm rolling with it. Um, it's, I'm just excited not to be writing right now. Having a looming deadline, it's like, what can I do to get away from my desk? Yeah, and, and you know, actually that process of being intimate with your work and then like sharing it and you really show up in your work in this book and in your talks when we met uh in new york you really do show up in a way that shares your own personal story but also you create this container for sharing all of these other stories that people have told you you don't identify anyone obviously of course you respect their privacy mm -hmm. um that really lets people know that it's okay to have questions about sex not really know whether or not whatever's going on with your body or your arousal level or your desire or your attraction level, whether or not that's normal or not. And that you really kind of gave a lot of people permission to just open up and share and kind of let them know, like, actually, it's okay. Yeah. One of the things you learn, the longer you study sexuality, the more you come to the conclusion that there really is no such thing as like normal human sexuality. We all just vary so much. And that's sort of the point of sexuality is diversity and variety. And none of it is an experience of illness or disease with the exception of uh, sensation. If you're experiencing unwanted pain, during sex, talk to a medical provider. Otherwise, whatever challenges you're experiencing, we can probably think through like what is the context in which your sexuality is functioning and what's the relationship between your body and brain and that context. And we'll figure it out from there. I love that because, you know, long ago I had heard something along the lines of, you know, the most seductive sound to a woman is that of a vacuum cleaner running as pushed by her husband or something, you know, and, right. and, 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 and I kind of laughed at the time, but it sort of points to what you're talking about. Yeah, for some people, uh, what that vacuum represents is like, I'm being supported, I'm being helped, my partner is there for me, it builds trust. Like, it's not just that a clean carpet is an arousing thing. It's that I know my partner supports me in this thing that matters to me, which is the, you know, state of our house. Right. Yeah. So For other people, so my sister is, I have permission to tell a few stories about my sister, and this is one of them. Uh, she and her husband are both musicians, and for her, the most arousing sound is the sound of him practicing piano. Because everybody's different. But what it evokes in the person who's listening is the same sense of safety or receptivity somatically, right? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, it's the meaning of the sound that matters. Not, it's not that the sound of a vacuum is inherently arousing or the sound of scales on a piano in a particular key is arousing. It is the meaning of the sound that activates something inside of us that hits the accelerator and deactivates the brake. Right. So talk a little bit about that because the context, you talk about spontaneous versus responsive desire. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about debunking the sex drive. So I know you've spoken about this before, but for folks who aren't familiar with your work, can you give Mm -hmm. us a little bit of a summary of those things? Sure. So the starting place is the structure of the mechanism in your brain. Uh, The mechanism that governs sexual response is called the dual control mechanism, which of course means it has two parts. The first part is the sexual gas pedal or accelerator. It notices the sexually relevant information in the environment and it sends the turn on signal. So anything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially imagine that your brain codes as a sexually related piece of information, it sends the turn on signal. And most of us are familiar with that part of it. The real revolution in the dual control model is recognizing that like every other system in the central nervous system, there's a sexual break, which notices all the really good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a reason that's a potential threat basically. So what this means is that the process of becoming aroused is a dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. Uh, So when people find that a sensation in one context, I always use the example of tickling, for example. Um, If you're already in a fun, flirty, playful state of mind, your brain has turned off a whole lot of offs already and is ready to turn on some more ons. And so it'll interpret the sensation. Your certain special someone comes over and starts tickling you. Your brain is ready to interpret that as a sexy, fun, pleasurable sensation. But if the exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you are pissed off at them, you wanna punch him in the face. It's exactly the same sensation, but because your brain is in a different state, because the context is different, your brain interprets it in the opposite way. Um, So the power of the dual control model is that it normalizes both the ambivalence we can experience around uh, sexuality, and it helps us to understand why the perception of a sensation is context dependent. Very often sex educators like me ask people to complete like worksheets where they say, this is a turn on and this is a turn off for me. But we have to acknowledge that something that's a turn off in some contexts can be a turn on in other contexts. It just depends on like the setting and your relationship and your own physical and mental health and other life circumstances. Uh, So when the context is right, we can experience sexual desire the way our culture sort of tells us we're supposed to all the time. This is spontaneous desire that seems like it's just appearing out of the blue. You're just walking down the street and suddenly, uh, so Erica Moen is the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, and she draws this as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Just kaboom, you want sex. You just want some sex, right? Um, And this does happen to a lot of people, at least sometimes, Uh, And it especially happens in a context where your brain's already not hitting the brakes very much and the accelerator's sensitive and ready to go. So the hot and heavy fallen in love stage of a relationship, spontaneous desire is more common in sort of everyone, not absolutely everyone. Um, And then 10 years later in the relationship, when you've, uh, you don't have the like hot and heavy love spark attachment already burning, 
which makes it easy for the sex light to catch fire. Uh, and instead, you've also, you've got less uh, inherent accelerator simulation and more sort of the accumulated gunk of 10 years of a relationship, little resentments and frustrations, and plus the exhaustion of whatever childcare you might be doing and whatever work things in your own relationship with your body as it has changed over the last 10 years, that stuff hits the brakes. And so people end up wondering, how come I don't want my partner the way I used to? The answer is because the context is different. It's nothing to do with how much you love your partner. It's not even to do with how desirable they are and how desirable you feel they are. It's that the context is different. You need to shape the context to allow your brain to interpret the world as a sexy place. So this is a long answer to your question, but there are a lot of pieces. No, but but it's great. Go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. So the last piece of it is um, what happens is that 10 years down the road into the relationship or however long, longer, um, instead of having that spontaneous kaboom, I just can't wait to get my tongue in your mouth feeling, what happens is the couples who sustain strong sexual connection over multiple decades are the couples who, one, have a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship. They're really good friends. They trust each other. They're there for each other. And two, they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for their relationship, that they set aside time from all the other things that they could be doing, the whatever childcare, whatever work, whatever, like hanging out with other friends and other family members, or God forbid, they just want to watch some TV. They stop doing all those things. They close the door. They put their body in the bed with this other person and let their body remember, oh, right, I like this person. I like this sensation how couples who sustain strong sexual connections work sexually is not that they're the couples who can't wait for to have sex with each other. They're not necessarily the couples who have wild adventurous sex. That's not predictive of a stable relationship in the long term. Um, and it's also not the couples who have sex very often. Very few of us are having sex very often. We are busy. So the characteristic is simply that they decide that it matters and they put their body and they like the sex they have when they decide to have it. Yeah, which I think is so amazing because so many people think, of course, based on media or and, you know, based on a lot of the images and the things that are out there, it's like all sex all the time. And, right. and it's like puritanical on the other hand. And then it's like sexy time and Pornhub on the other hand. And then it's like so confusing and people are like, wait, what? I can't. And then some people are like, I'm not down with that. And then, you know, so it's a, it's a no shame in the game, no kink shaming, no anything about anyone or anything, but there's just so much out there that sometimes people I think just want to check out and say, I'm not even going to like enter into this, uh, you know, race or marathon. I'm going to kind of check out. Yeah. But in fact, there's a lot more that could be explored if one is looking at it, not from a place of shame not from a place of it should be a certain way, but from this deeper understanding of the neurobiology and the physiology mm -hmm. around the stuff that is basically working with our nervous system and the way our bodies are wired. Absolutely. So that we can then bring a sense of, as you say, mindful attention to that arena of our lives as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, then you'd also talk about sex drive, which you kind of get into with the spontaneous desire part, mm -hmm. but let's talk a little bit about that because I think it's so worth debunking again yeah. and clarifying again. 
and I, I think has gotten more important over the years as the cultural conversation around men's sexual entitlement has found its way to the mainstream in the wake of the Me Too movement and the incel attack in Toronto. People need to be talking about the nature of sexual desire. Um, when we talk about sex drive, when biologists say that something is a drive, what they mean is that it is a biological need. So hunger is a drive, thirst is a drive, even sleep is a drive, thermoregulation, right? Uh, and they are these uncomfortable internal experiences that push us out into the world to solve the problem. And if we don't solve the problem, what happens? We can literally die. You can literally die of sleep deprivation. It's hard, it takes a long time, it sucks, but you can literally die. That does not happen with sex. Sex is not an uncomfortable, like a wooga warning signal, go fix this problem or else something bad will happen. Instead, it is an incentive motivation system, which is uh, not an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes you to go fix a problem. It is a pleasant internal sensation activated by some desirable, attractive something out there where you're pulled toward that appetitive, desirable something out there. Um, uh, the, so the analogy is not hunger. Sex is instead like curiosity. And one, nobody thinks it's a disease if you have a very stressful, difficult day and you're not feeling very curious at the end of that day. Of course, we all know that stress inhibits curiosity. That's well documented. And two, if someone steals a loaf of bread because they and their family are starving, we can feel a certain way about that. But if someone steals a loaf of bread because they're just really curious to find out what this other person's bread tastes like, we feel a different way about that. So we need to recognize that sex is not a biological need. It is a spectacular and natural part of human existence. And nobody's going to die if they don't get laid. So the better we understand the nature of this real physiological experience that we have, the better we can think clearly about what sex actually means for us at a cultural level devil's advocate. So a lot of people will say, but I feel like I'm going to die. Right. Yeah. And so, so and, and that'll be like this urge surfing part, right. Perhaps instead, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. Go. So Go. two pieces to that one. Yeah. So, uh, if you feel really curious about something and you try really hard to explore it, to get your hands on it, to dig deeper into the mystery, and it's more difficult than, it's, than you feel like it should be, why am I working so hard and I can't get this thing that I feel so desirous of, what's happening, Arr! you get really frustrated, that's the uncomfortable internal experience. Uh, the research around this is uh, Charles Carver is the researcher I turn to. This is called Criterion Velocity and the Discrepancy Reducing Feedback Loop, which everyone just fell asleep. Don't remember that. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but frustration is an uncomfortable internal experience that arises from the frustration of not being able to access the thing we want. That doesn't mean you're going to die. So that's one part of it. But two... Sex is not just sex. When we, if we just wanted sex, we could masturbate. All done. When people want sex with someone else, they don't just want the sex. There's a lot of other things going into it. And one of those things is attachment, social connection, a feeling like of engaging meaningfully with another person. And that feeling 
is arguably a drive, the drive to connect with others. When human infants are born, if you feed them and keep them warm and safe and well-fed, uh, they can still die, literally, of loneliness. That's the argument that social connection is a drive. So there are some people who are just painfully, agonizingly lonely, and the only way they know to connect with someone is through sex, because that's all they've ever been taught is permissible. And you talked about that in the piece that you wrote about the uh, incels in, yeah. in, in Canada. The, and for those who don't know the slang term, it's uh, involuntary celibate. And so basically uh, guys who say that they can't get sex when they say they want it. But what your argument really is, is that it's about the fact that these folks are not just them, but people who are feeling entitled to sex or wanting sex or going for sex and that they're, that they're lonely, that they want connection. And then I've heard you say, um, normal equals belonging that like mm -hmm. people want to be connected and that you're saying that the drive for loneliness like with attachment theory, of course, with secure attachment, with feeling as though, um, you have a sufficient, uh, holding space from your early caregivers, that mm -hmm. that sets you up for um, being able to be more able to probably relate to, okay, so maybe I want this right now, but I'm not going to get this, but I can have my needs met here, and then mm -hmm. I can whatever, and then I can have conversations, God forbid, and use my words about what it is that I might want, and you know whether or not the other person is on board, and then that, of course, brings in the agency and the stuff of relatability when it comes to intimate relationships that I think mm -hmm. oftentimes goes out the window, especially in the age of swiping and uh, that kind of thing with... Uh, you know, the buffet, if you will, that's available nowadays that wasn't there, I don't know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, dating is totally different now, even from when I was dating 15 years ago. Everything has changed. We have very little research on the impact it is having. Um, but if you think about the way humans have met each other and gotten together forever up until about 1990, there was always a face-to-face -face meeting that happened before any decision-making happened. Uh, so it's like, I'm really curious what the research is going to tell us about the impact of like internet mediated meeting, which let me just for the record say, I met my husband on the internet. Okay. Cupid has the best algorithm, but uh, like, I don't know what as a conglomerate is that doing uh, to us as a culture? I don't know. Well, what I've heard, and this is just to your point about, um, you know, loneliness, is that a lot of avoidance, secure attachment, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you have insecure attachment and you're avoidant, which means you were neglected, you know, early on and you've learned to self-regulate or sort of take care of your own needs and you're not so comfortable reaching out to an interactive uh, regulation with others because you don't trust that they'll meet your needs and so you kind of stay in your own silo, that those folks end up um, being more prevalent on dating sites because they can dip into the action of sex, sex a la carte, without mm -hmm. the commitment. And they're more prone to what we would call, again, slang term ghosting, which is they pop in and then they just disappear, meaning that you might have this physical encounter, but there's no commitment there for a relationship. And mm -hmm. for, as you say, the foundation of what would be a good relationship, which is friendship, that they're mm -hmm. only interested in hookup or whatever it might be. And I think that that is interesting because the pool of people who seem to end up more in online dating pools, so I'm told than research, tends to be more of that category. That is fascinating.
<laughs> so we'll see, like you say. Um, okay, so now let's talk a little bit about this idea of normalization of experience, right? We have a lot of people out there who you talk biology a little bit and say, you know, listen, this is what your vulva looks like. This is what your vagina looks like. This is what um, is a homologous structure. This is what it is in the man. This is what it is in the woman. A lot of men look at their nipples. They don't even think twice, but in fact, they're Anyway, talk yeah. just briefly about the fact that we're more alike than we are different. And perhaps if we root ourselves a little bit more into what that means, we can actually find more connection and less division among the sexes or even among whatever the relationships are, right? Because this applies to same-sex couples as well. Right. So if we go back to like the initial formation of an individual human being, it begins with sperm meeting egg somewhere and then implanting into a uterus as all the cells multiply. And at this point, there's only a genetic difference. There's XY versus XX, and very occasionally there are other combinations like XXY. Um, and uh, it's at the six and a half week of gestation that we begin to get any physical differences at all. There's this wash of testosterone, and if the genetics are right, then the blastocyst, is it a blastocyst at that point or an embryo? Well, the, the bundle of cells reacts differently to that testosterone depending on uh, whether it's got a Y that can respond to all this testosterone. But up to then, everything is identical. So we have this, this sort of prefabricated installed hardware that gets expressed differently after that and reorganizes itself so that there is uh, a component, like for example, a phallus, that if your body responds to the testosterone, it turns into a penis, usually. And if your body doesn't respond to the testosterone, that phallus turns into a clitoris, usually. And uh, if it responds to the hormones, uh, it, you'll, certain tissue, the labioscrotal tissue, will turn into a scrotum, or it'll turn into labia. Depending. If you look, if you get up close and personal with the scrotum, you'll see the seam running down the center. Uh, it's called the scrotal raphe, and that is where that person's scrotum would have formed into labia instead had the hormonal environment been just a little bit different in the womb or the genetic environment been a little bit different. So it's all the same parts, just organized in different ways in this totally literal sense. All the same parts, just organized in this slightly different way. You can go from part to part, and it is all the same. And that is true from our biology up to every single aspect of it. So I was talking about the dual control model, the mechanism in our brain. Also, everybody's got these two parts, but they're organized differently. So for some people, uh, they have a really super sensitive accelerator and maybe a really not so sensitive brake. And those folks have a different style of sexually responding than people who have sort of an average level of sensitivity. Some folks have a really sensitive break. Some folks have a really not sensitive accelerator. Actually, folks with really not too sensitive accelerators are the most likely to identify as asexual. Asexuality is about 1% of the population in North America. Um, and the best predictor we have of that is uh, when they take a survey and report that it just takes a whole lot of stimulation to make their accelerator activate into any kind of interest in sex. It's all the same parts, just organized in different ways. There's nothing pathological about any of these things. There's nothing pathological about the shape and organization of your genitals. People just vary from each other. It's not just 
that uh, the penis organization is different from the vulva organization. It's that if you look at all the various vulvas that there are and all the various penis scrotum combinations that there are, they're all different from each other and none of them are a problem. If there is pain or infection or risk for infection, that's when there's a necessity for medical intervention. But otherwise, it's just all the same parts organized in a different way. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and it kind of leads me into the next part, which is sort of your book, your new book, I think probably too, is there's been a lot of um, research, I think, lately and also studies that I've read about and shown about the number of women, including young women, teenagers, getting uh, labiaplasty, which is mm -hmm. general uh, reconfiguration surgery, not for reasons that have to do with injury or, you know, impalement or something in, in a particular nether region or whatever, but to do with um, trying to fashion the look of their uh, vagina vulva into a particular way that, frankly, is, uh, I think, made more popular by the proliferation of uh, porn uh, stars who've done that and then people who've watched that and then feel as though that's what's normal or what's beautiful. And we've seen this prior with sort of the, you know, blonde California girl or the, you know, particular kind of uh, body, Kate Moss, whatever. And Nose then, jobs, boob jobs. Yep. You know, we've seen all of that and then whatever it is and the, the fetishization of it in terms of sexuality with the boob jobs as opposed to just like the nose job or whatever. And then we've seen you know, sort of the Beyonce, J-Lo, you know, whatever, and now it's the Ashley Graham and, you know, the other folks who are making curvier women, um, I guess, more acceptable, if you will, in a mainstream culture because they mm -hmm. have traditional beauty standards in many ways, uh, in addition to their, their curves. But this business of changing, you know, bleaching your whatever and, you know, cutting apart your, what you know, it, it's just sort of crazy to me. So your next book is called Burnout, and it's mm -hmm. bringing this into the social sphere. Um, and I think I mentioned I was in, uh, I am in somatic experiencing trauma training right now. And I also know Stacey Gaines's work uh, with generative somatics works in sort of this sphere in terms of bringing out into a, a social arena um, some of these more comprehensive, mindful, encapsulating, equilibrating exercises. But talk to me about what the book is about and where you picked off from Come As You Are uh, going into the next one and, and what you're trying to do with bringing awareness to these issues about sexism and all of that at a larger level. Yeah, it's actually directly tied to somatic experiencing, as a matter of fact. Um, in chapter four, context is so important to women's sexuality that I have multiple chapters, two whole chapters that are not about sexuality at all. They're about stress and love and body feelings, right? Like body shame and sexual disgust. Uh, and I had to fight a little bit with my publisher. They're like, why are these chapters here? They're not about sex. It's like, well, women's sexuality exists in a context of their whole lives. The best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. So we need to talk about overall well-being. So there's this chapter on stress where I describe the way, because stress, is that good for your sex life? Generally, it hits the brakes. Uh, so I have to teach people how to manage stress. And I use this model that I call completing the cycle where your stress response activates. We all know by now the fight or flight response, you're being chased by a lion. There's only two possible outcomes when you're being chased by a lion. Either you get eaten by the lion, in which case none of this matters anymore, or 
you escape the lion, right? You run and you escape and you go back to your community and you say, oh my God, guys, I just escaped from this lion and you feel supported by them. That is the complete stress response cycle. And when this mechanism evolved in our bodies, it was to deal with stressors like that. We have the same mechanism, but we are almost never chased by lions anymore. Instead, the kind of stressors we have are not life-threatening, but they are chronic. We can't literally run away from them. You have to be nice to your boss, no matter how much of a jerk they're being. You have to smile and nod and be socially appropriate while your body is responding with the adrenaline and cortisol and glucocorticoids and all that stuff of running away. So what do we do about this disconnect between what we have to do socially to deal with our stressors? This is the dealing of the stressor itself versus dealing with the stress response that's physically happening and needs us to do something because if we don't complete the cycle, we'll just get stuck. That stress response will stay activated. It will put, plant itself somewhere in our bodies. Everyone's body is different in where it goes. Um, uh, so what we need to do is to learn how to complete the cycle. And there's lots of evidence-based strategies. Physical activity is the most evidence-based and the most common and the most efficient. Social connection is really important. Plenty of sleep. There are lots of strategies. So actually start, I, I talk about that in uh, Come As You Are, and it's where burnout starts because the first thing we need to know is how to take care of the mechanism. I call that section, uh, what you take with you, like Yoda, when, um, uh, Luke Skywalker is looking into the cave. He says, what's in there? And Yoda says, only what you take with you. So the first section is about what you take with you. And one of the things you take with you is this mechanism of completing the cycle so that you can really deal with the stress itself. We also talk about ways that we create meaning in our lives, which again is a resource that exists within you. No one can take it away, no matter what life circumstances you experience. It can feel like life is trying to strip meaning from you and it can try to create a context that will take meaning away. And it can never fully succeed because the meaning lives inside of your body. Um, and then in the next section, we call it the real enemy from, uh, are, you, are you a Hunger Games fan at all? Um, I've watched them, but I can't say that I know the analogy. Yeah. So uh, Katniss Everdeen has to fight in this ga game that the government has invented where children have to kill each other, right? I remember that, yeah. Yeah, so her mentor says, remember who the real enemy is. Because it's not those other children in there trying to kill her. It's the government that set up this fucked up system. So the second session is, section of the book is about the real enemy, the fucked up system. And that's two things. One, it's the patriarchy. Ugh. Trust like, me, I know. <laughs> yeah, like, like, it, like let's say out loud and acknowledge and honor that women have to work harder. Women of color have to work even harder than white women. So if we recognize that the landscape we are traversing is truly different, that will help us to understand why it feels so hard. It's because it is hard. And it's even harder because the world around us, this, the nature of this landscape we're traversing is to lie to us and tell us that it's not harder. No, 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 everything's totally fair. Everything's equal now. If you don't get the raise you wanted, it's because you didn't ask or you didn't ask in the right way. If you didn't get the date and you don't have the health outcome, you didn't drink the 10 smoothies and it's your fault. It's because you did it wrong. 
no, no. So that's <laughs> one. There was a chapter on patriarchy. And number two of the real enemies is uh, what my sister calls the bikini industrial complex, which is the, I don't know, trillion dollar industry that whose job is to make you feel like shit about your body so that you will buy more shit. Um, and, uh, or get those surgeries. Yeah. So that you will spend money on surgery, which will inevitably not actually one of they've done research on this and they find that, uh, it turns out when people have these kinds of surgeries, it very rarely results in a decrease in their sense of self-criticism. They just move their criticism to some other part of their body and they continue to be dissatisfied because the underlying problem is not treated with surgery. It's treated by turning toward your body as it is right now with kindness and compassion and acceptance. And that's, of course, the mindful uh, attention, yes. the non-judgmental moment-to-moment attention. I feel like society as a whole often is just gaslighting a lot of women, right? Oh, yeah. Women in general. And what I mean by that is sort of saying one thing, but another is actually happening. And so much of it is programmed in mm-hmm. that it feels normal or looks normal because it's habitual. So the conditioning... Yes from precedent is there. So you can say, well, of course that may be the way that it's always been, but that doesn't mean it was ever really right or equitable or fair. Yes. That's why this disruption is required in order to move forward into something that's actually more holistic, realistic, and natural for all folks. And what I think a lot of people miss, because I've talked to a lot of male feminists about this and, and therapists and people like Michael Kimmel and Terry Real that study and work on patriarchy and different things, is really sort of getting men to understand that they're looking at things through a lens mm-hmm. that is necessarily exclusionary. Yeah. It doesn't have a lived experience of people of color. It doesn't have a lived experience of women of any color. Mm-hmm. And that also um, may or may not include class, right? Like in terms of economics. Oh, it which, does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so in your new book, then you're bringing this out further into that arena. And one of the things that I, when I mentioned this to someone who actually is a mindfulness teacher, um, they were like, yeah, but the righteous anger, what about it? Well, they were having issues with it. Yeah. Where do you put the rage? That is the core question of once you recognize the recognition of the patriarchy is not a neutral experience. When you start to see the injustices and the unfairness and the inequality and you sort of step outside that lens that you've been looking at, that's not, you don't, you're not just like, oh, that's really fascinating. Hmm. No, you're enraged you are furious did you watch tracy ellis ross's ted talk yeah oh oh i was there in the room and i was like go yeah like sit with your fury it has generations of wisdom and i was like feelings it is absolutely right and so where do we put it what do we do with it what's the most effective and we go back to completing the cycle there is a difference between what you do with the feelings and what you do with the problem that activated the feelings it is the case that if you approach you know men with your patriarchy is terrible like they're gonna have the reaction that a person has it when they feel attacked so instead you do what you can to intervene effectively and you know you sit at a table writing policy with people you disagree with, like that's how you actually solve the problem. 
And then you go somewhere else to put your rage. I think of rage, my rage is like my most famous and glamorous friend. I will only introduce her to very specific people whom I can trust, who I know are not gonna take advantage of her, who I know if I introduce them, those people aren't gonna try to like manipulate her or judge her. They're just gonna be like, hey, welcome. So I don't think rage, what's been effective in my life is making sure that rage is like this like really special friend I have that I share only with the people who really deserve to get to know her. Well, what I love about that is that, you know, they talk about, um, you know, from the Buddhist perspective and there's various forms of it and whatever, but that I know Dalai Lama is very famous and he talks about compassion and be kind. My religion is kindness and all of that. And then there's a lot of thing uh, about like what they call idiot compassion, which is like, you're sort of an enabler. You're kind of too nice to too many people. You're not getting your own needs met yeah. versus what might be termed as fierce compassion, which is this idea of really recognizing what's right and what's wrong on the spectrum of justice and then putting your effort into actually doing the action that it would take that would be appropriate to yes. resolve the issue and help. And I think that that kind of, you know, recognition of rage, if you will, as being the energy of this ain't right mm -hmm. and moving it toward something that is generative, like your policy making or whatever it is, or writing your book, right. doing something. Or facilitating a conversation with people you disagree with occasionally, not yeah. always. But a lot of people I don't think can make that connection because they get stuck in yes. the it's not right and right. Yeah. So can you talk about how that relates to you know, what people need to do. You have a few friends that you talk to. You mentioned exercise before. Oh, yes. Where is the place for that? Because there's a lot of conversation about me too. Like, oh, now women are just talking about, you know, they have a, as my mom used to say, a hair across their ass, you know? <laughs> it's a terrible conversation, but you know, I mean, you know what I mean? That they're, that they're making a hang, a hangnail, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. That there's a lot of that backlash. Yeah. You know. um, and in particular, the, the media attention has attempted to shift me to away from the survivors and onto the perpetrators. Like, I love a good perp walk. There was something really satisfying about seeing Harvey Weinstein in handcuffs. And that's not what actually matters. What truly matters, like, and he's the target of our rage and we want to see him punished, right? That's the rage. But what really needs to happen is we need to talk about the survivors and what they need in order to move forward because most survivors are never gonna get a perp walk like that. And they still need to find a way. Tarana Burke was on TV that day saying, let's ignore the perpetrators. Like they're not the center of the story. Yes, we need to pursue justice and the center of our attention always needs to stay on the survivors and what they need. And as angry as we are at the perpetrator, how kind and generous can we be with the survivor? And the rage needs to go somewhere and it doesn't go toward the survivor. You go, uh, another metaphor I have for rage is like a backpack that you're carrying around a little bit and it's got a bomb in it. So if you're gonna, you know, set off the bomb, you wanna be in a place where you know nobody's gonna get hurt. So you can go ahead and like do your primal scream, which is totally an evidence-based practice. And uh, like purge it, get it out of your body, do whatever it takes, jump up and down and scream. And it's a biological event. Here's the thing, it's the fight response, right? And just as what your body needs when you're in fight or flight, in the flight mode is to run, 
what your body needs in fight mode is the same thing, physical activity that releases the energy and completes the stress response cycle so that you can get back to a relaxed place because it's in that calm place that we can actually do the work of creating change. Yeah, and I love what you're saying because I think that it, it makes space for both phenomenons, right? Like mm-hmm. phenomena. One is that it is a physiological response where you need to complete the cycle and let go of the rage and release yeah. it. So there's a cathartic and you can do it in a more larger, grosser way or in the somatic experiencing way. You can mm-hmm. tighten it and just sort of, I, you know, take yes. bites, you know, slow is fast. And that's the procedure that we use when you step mm-hmm. into it and you maybe slow down a movement of perhaps if you yeah. have trader, you know, doing this, but that doing this slowly mm-hmm. is actually working with the this. body or this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had clients do that with me and they're just, yeah. you know, when I did somatic experiencing, I did this, my uh, practitioner puts her palms lightly against mine and I push and I was shaking and sobbing, doing almost no work. And I could feel how my body was like, thank you for letting me do this at last. Yeah, because it's settling back into more of an equilibrated state, right? Otherwise, holding all of this stuff in and you're like wanting to popcorn out the rage. And then, of course, that's inappropriate. And then on the other hand, I mean, but necessary. I mean, it's a necessary habit, but not it can it can come out in inappropriate context is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have like people like Terry Real, who are talking about uh, like Carol, Carol Gilligan's work, like men need to have more access to the full range of their emotions, yes. and be able to express them and use them to connect. And women need to be able to have more access to their voice. And the thing that Terry will say is that the voice needs to be done in an interrelated way, as you said, with kindness and compassion when they're talking to people like men trying to educate around patriarchy, but also still find a way to have the outlet for what the soma needs to release and so it's not an either or it's unfortunately a both and there's just more work to do there yes and it's true at every scale even if all you're trying to do is resolve a relationship conflict if you're just like two people yelling your points of view at each other you know in a walmart at three o'clock in the morning like that's not resolving the problem at some point you have to stop and listen to each other and engage in the rational problem solving of like how do we create a structure of relationship where we can rebuild trust or where we can forgive or whatever it is that you need to do. And there's the separate process of connecting through the emotion, which is different from solving the problem that activated all of that emotion. So there's going to be the times when you lie in bed holding each other and one person is like crying about how betrayed they felt and how difficult it is to trust them. And the other partner is holding them, allowing that, yep, I hear you. Yes. That it hurts a lot. I know. Yes. And then you trade <laughs> and like both people are there for each other with those difficult feelings. And that's part of the process, but not the only thing that has to happen. There's also the pragmatic problem solving, right? So both of the things have to happen at every scale from just like the interpersonal to the large scale cultural. And don't you think that that sort of just recognition of the idea that this stuff takes work, right? We all have a certain amount of trauma, some more than others, um, and that men included, even if you're a white male, cisgendered, you know, part of the recipient of lots of privilege or whatever, there's folks who have issues, that, um, that we need to really engage in both the internal excavation as well as the skill building in order to function well. Otherwise, frankly, we're kind of dysfunctioning at most levels. Yeah, learning to feel our feelings 
is a skill. And whoever teaches us, it was actually, so one of the strange things that happened after I wrote Come As You Are, I went on a book tour and I traveled to all these places and talked to all these women about their experience of the book. And what I heard over and over was, yes, thank you for all this sex science. That's really great. It's useful to know about responsive desire. It's useful to know about the dual control model. But man, that chapter on feelings, that was the really life-changing part. Um, and I went, I have an identical twin sister. And I went to her and I was like, so what people are saying to me is that my sex book, the best part about it is the feelings part. And she is a choral conductor and uh, teaches feelings for a living. And she said, yeah, because whoever teaches us how to feel our feelings in an effective way. And heck, my sister said, when I learned about it, it saved my life twice, she said. Uh, and that was literally the moment when I was like, we should write a book about that. So I'm writing Burnout with Amelia. That's awesome. Yeah, you mentioned her a couple of times and how your experiences growing up were, um, you know, your interpretation of sexuality and stuff was, was played out. Was in different ways. Weird, yeah. <laughs> like, how can it be? We're identical twins raised in the same household, but by the time we were 15, we had totally different models in our minds of what a sexual woman was supposed to be like. Like, I thought sort of the Cosmo model, like a sexual woman performs her sexual pleasure because men like women who enjoy sex. And my sister had like the 19th century Victorian women don't want, good girls do not want sex. They do it only because their partner wants it. They don't experience pleasure and they don't, certainly don't want any of it. Same. Because that's how like totally contradictory the messes of our culture in terms of the messages that two people can live in the same place and absorb completely different messages. Right, right. But there is the message that we can tune into is what our body needs. And a lot of yeah. it does go back to safety. A lot of it goes back to trust. A lot of it goes back to the cultivation of friendship, like we talked yep. about in time. And then, um, you know, I always have said, I wrote about this when I was at, in college many moons ago, and um, it was my first introduction to the spectrum of sexuality and also the male gaze, right? What mm -hmm. is film and how is it depicted in literature and all of that. But I've always said that sex is a playground. Sex is a power playground. And it is, could be fun. And, you know, some of the same things, like you say, are context dependent where you can be exploring, but it also is where oh. the rubber meets the road when it comes to boundaries, when it comes to self-care, mm -hmm. when it comes to communication, when it comes to one's ability to feel safe with someone else, like the stakes are high, right? And that when those things aren't there, one can get stuck into a, unfortunately, you know, sort of hypo aroused state many times or hyper trying to like finish something like you say that wasn't completed. And you have people who maybe are overly promiscuous beyond what they want to be, if you will, which no shame in the game. I mean, again, physiological, you know, responses and whatever, or folks who are really kind of shut down that need or want or desire for a, a greater awakening and, and connection, but that both go back to what you said about belonging, mm -hmm. right? Like that idea of we could die of loneliness. And if you're just having random sex all the time, you could be lonely just as if you're sort of hypo aroused and not having sex, but wanting it, you could be really lonely. Yeah. But that that joining is really 
It's a beautiful yeah. thing when it works. <laughs> the thing that Amelia's and my sort of like early learning about sexuality had in common was that neither of them had anything to do with what our own bodies were communicating to us. Mm -hmm. That our sexuality was defined by these cultural messages without reference to anything to, that, to do with us as individual human beings walking around in meat suits, like nothing. Um, and so sexuality, we had these ideas of what it was supposed to be, and we tried to insert our bodies into these frameworks and went through the process that so many people go through of realizing this doesn't fit. Is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with the box I'm trying to put myself into and sort of recognizing it's the box. Hmm. So what box do I want for me? And the box that a person wants for themselves probably changes over time. There is such a thing as sex where the stakes are really low. As long as that's true for all of the people involved, that can be really great. And there's such a thing as sex where the stakes are excruciatingly high. And that's where it gets scary. We are also tender around sexuality, so fearful of hurting someone else's feelings and so sensitive to any hint that we might not be meeting our partner's expectations, might not be giving them full pleasure, that there's something about us that they are judging. And we have to be so like loving and kind in the ways we communicate what we want. I'm sure you get asked about sexual communication all the time. And it's a tricky question because how do I ask my partner for X, Y, Z? I mean, you ask for it. Really, the question is, what's stopping you? And often it's, I'm afraid my partner is going to have their feelings hurt. I'm afraid my partner might judge me for asking for this thing. I'm afraid that uh, they'll do it just for me and sacrifice themselves, or that we'll do it, and then it turns out I won't actually like it, and I'll have like wasted their time and been vulnerable in this way that was all for nothing. Um, so when you're talking about sexual communication, you're talking about so much more than just like, what sentence do I say to ask for this thing I'd like? Absolutely. And I think the very, you know, for some people, even asking for the right, you know, their preferred flavor of ice cream is difficult, you know, yeah. so, you know, asking for what you might want in the bedroom is a whole other, you know, tier of, of stuff. The one thing I do think, especially with Me Too now and Time's Up is I feel like a lot of women have felt as though they because of the way women are socialized in this culture that we're here to meet the needs of others right you talk about this oh, you yeah. talk about this at the end and you used um language where you called it something like it wasn't exactly this but like the givers the takers and then oh, like yes. individual people so like let's talk about can you yeah that? this language comes from the most important book that i've read in writing burnout uh the book is called down girl the logic of misogyny by Kate Mann. She's a M-A-N-N-E. She's a moral philosopher. Um, and she uses this language of human beings and human givers. So the cartoon version of this is uh, there's a world where there's one group of people, the human beings, who have a moral obligation to be and express their full humanity and should do have a moral obligation to do whatever it takes and are entitled to whatever it takes for them to be and express their full humanity. And then there's the human givers whose moral obligation is to give their full humanity in support of the beings. They're expected to do this happily and without imposing any needs of their own. 
It includes their time, their attention, their love, any property they may own, even their bodies. They're supposed to, they're expected to hand over with pleasure to whatever human being wants it. Unless, of course, that human giver is owned by a particular human being, in which case that human being has claim and could like land out their human giver if they want to. So when I got this language, I was like, this, this explains so much. Not just sexual violence, but like the second shift. The expectation is simply that, because, you know, in this scenario, guess which one are the women, right? The, as human givers, we're simply expected to give every drop of energy we have, every second of our time, every single thought we have to the well-being of others. So, of course, when we get home, we're not just going to, like, rest. God forbid. We have to invest every moment that we have to the caretaking of the people we live with and to the home that we share with them. Of course we do. Whereas a human being know, get, is entitled to the rest that's necessary to continue life on Earth. Yeah, and so shifting that is part of the work that you're trying to promote. Yeah, when I talk about this with uh, college students in particular, and I'm like, so what's the answer? What's the solution to this problem? Their first response is very often, we'll just make everybody a human being. Because men are the default, of course, because patriarchy. But if we imagine a world full of just human beings who have moral obligation to express their full humanity and are entitled to take whatever they want for it, like that's, that's not a good world. That's a world, I mean, if we follow Thomas Hobbes, it's eternal warfare or tyranny, fun. But instead, let's imagine a world where everyone is raised to be a form of a human giver, where everyone feels a moral obligation to support the people around them. If you're a human giver surrounded by human givers and you get exhausted, worn out, or uh, are feeling too tired for sex or whatever, and you only have human givers around you, they're gonna be like, you are feeling tired, you need a nap, we will have stew waiting for you when you are done, take care of you, right? It is only in the context of the patriarchy that being a human giver is potentially damaging. It is not being a giver in and of itself, that's the problem. It is being taken advantage of. Yeah, yeah no, I totally get that. And I so appreciate it because I, uh, I remember actually, I was listening to a talk show on some crappy morning radio show in Boston when I was home a while ago. And uh, the guy who was calling in said, well, I wouldn't be such a taker if she wasn't such a giver. And uh, I was like, <laughs> wow, like, that kind of sums it up, right? Like, and so it was, it was just a light bulb that went on. And so it speaks to what you're talking about. And this shift into more people being more generous and more people being more in tune with not only their own needs, but reflexively with that of others. And then having it be this back and forth dance, mm-hmm. as opposed to, I need to silo all of my stuff just for me when I need it, right? Yeah. Is, is a shift that we do need for the planet because it's not sustainable to continue this way, either ecologically or interrelationally or spiritually or whatever. So I really applaud all the work that you've done, all the gifts that you've given to everyone. And um, just want to give you a moment to share any parting thoughts as we wrap up our uh, time here together today. Parting thoughts. So as I said at the beginning, the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. And I just want to emphasize that 
one of the best predictors of a woman's overall well-being, apart from basic stuff like socioeconomic level and having her physiological needs met. One of her physiological needs is her connection with other people. So the fact that you create these and allow people to get that sense of connection and they share it with the people they care about, one of the best predictors of women's overall well-being is their connection with other people. Part of that they access sexually and a big part of it they access through other ways. And it helps to calibrate and, and really make the most, maximizes their sexual well-being when they can connect with other people. We need it. 100%. I'm down with connection. I am yeah. I'm totally down with connection. The, the, uh, one of my teachers calls it the caring committee. And uh, yeah. the, the, other, the other teacher calls it the, the transformation tribe or, you know, whoever it is that really is in your corner. In Buddhist circles, they call it Kalyanamita or spiritual friends, which basically just means people who are living with integrity or virtue and have your interests at heart as well mm -hmm. as their own, right? Yeah. So you certainly are holding a lot for a lot of people. And I wish you the very best in the next, uh, really, week and a half, I guess, uh, before uh, <laughs> the book gets sent out. I know it's so scary. I'm working on stuff too. And it's, uh, it's a yeah. real disciplined process. So thank you, Emily, for all you do. And I hope to connect again in the future. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thanks for being on Wise Girl. Bye.